The Bible from 30,000 feet, soaring through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Father, we thank you so much for the leadership that you've established in this church, this slice of your great church, Calvary. We thank you so much for Pastor Skip's leadership and the leadership that we've seen from the other pastors and our executive team. Lord, we ask that you would be uh, using Pastor Skip in these conversations that he's having with different world leaders. It's truly historic that's happening. And we don't say that lightly. And uh, we thank you that we get to just be a part of that by praying for him and by supporting him. God, we ask that you would be about your work through him. But we ask that you would be about your work here tonight as we open your word. And as we open our hearts and our ears to hear what you would have for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I want to talk to you about May Zhu. This evening, Meiju emigrated from China here to the USA in 1992. Now, Meiju is the founder of Chesapeake Bay Candle Company. Anybody, any candle lovers out there? Anybody like a big fan of the Chesapeake Bay Candle Company? It's like, wow, really? There's, that is such a unique thing to be a fan of. But there you go. Props to you, buddy. Uh, Meiju emigrated here to here from China in 1992, and she, she talks about her experience landing in the airport and seeing these lines that you have to go through. You know, when you travel internationally, you, you pass through passport control, and there's a place for citizens and there's a place for non-citizens. Only in 1992, she saw a sign that says U.S. passport holders, and then she saw a sign that said aliens. And uh, no, she, you, you, you can laugh at that. You know, that's a term that we've used um, to describe immigrants or people who are non-citizens before. But, it, you know, I think since then we've changed, we've changed it. We've become a little bit politically correct in that, which I think is maybe a good thing. But she said that as she saw that line that said aliens, she didn't know that that's what we referred to as non-citizens. She didn't know that she should be getting in that line. She literally had in her mind this picture of sci-fi creatures. And so she's just like, okay, well, I don't know where to go because I'm not an alien, but I'm not a U.S. citizen. And so eventually she made her way into that line. Well, as the years went on, she started this company she fell in love with Bloomingdale's and she was like going through their home department and she said, I want to make candles. And my dream is to make candles and get them into Bloomingdale's and get them into Target and create this, this, this global brand. And so she's done that. She became a U.S. citizen. And then in 2011, she was actually on a board of advisors to the president of the United States, which is pretty incredible. So from 1992... She, she uh, was an alien in this country, and then she became a citizen, and then she gave, became a representative to the president of these United States. And that really is the story of every Christian. That God has taken us, that he's made us who were non-citizens, us who were non-people. He has made us his people and has thus made us representatives of his kingdom. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verse nine, verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2. Starts out and it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Tonight we're going to be looking at these verses, verses 9 through 12. We're going to, we're going to see two designations that Peter gives us concerning our identity as Christians. Two designations, and that's actually the title of the message tonight. Citizens 
and strangers. Citizens and strangers. And what we're going to find is that our identity informs our activity. That who we are should determine what we do. And Peter is writing mainly to Gentiles who are scattered all around Asia Minor, which is just modern-day Turkey. But what's unique about the, the, the Christians that he's writing to is they're going through fierce persecution. They're suffering greatly. And so Peter writes to them in order to encourage them because of the suffering that they're going to through. And what he points out is that they are first citizens of heaven. He tries to encourage them with their position as God's special people. So our first point is you are a citizen. You are a citizen. And in this first verse, verse 9, he gets even more specific in defining what does it look like to be a citizen of heaven? What does it look like to be God's special people? And he creates kind of like four subcategories that we as Christians can fall under. And we've seen them and we quote them and maybe you've got a t-shirt that has all four of these on there. It says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. And so I thought maybe we could start tonight just by kind of examining each one of those statements and dissecting them and looking into what that meant for them and, 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 and how that applies to us as well. First off, we are a chosen generation, Peter tells us, a chosen generation. Now remember, he's talking to people who have been suffering. He's talking to people who are being persecuted. And couldn't that be one of the most comforting things to remind ourselves as we suffer? Is that we are chosen by God. You know, a lot of the language that we're going to uncover tonight is language that was used of Israel in the Old Testament and has also been used now in this context of Christians here. But think of the suffering that they were going through to be told you were handpicked by God. He chose you to be on his team. Again, this is language that was used of Israel, isn't it? Deuteronomy chapter 7 tells us the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number or that you were mighty than any other people, for you were the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, he chose you. And maybe you need to hear this tonight, that, that you and I weren't chosen by God to be a part of his family, to be citizens of his kingdom, because we're great. Maybe that's something you really need to hear because you think you're great, and you need to understand that, that it's not any of your greatness that God called you to himself. And maybe the exact opposite is the temptation that you have in your mind is you think, oh, I am such a, a weak and a lowly person that why would God ever want me? Maybe you need to hear tonight that God's love for you isn't based off of your performance. It isn't based off of your looks or your intelligence or anything else that you fall short in or excel in. He chose you because he chose you. He chose you because he loves you. And we can point to God and say, it is only God's grace that we get to be a citizen of heaven. You know, I took um, a test. They, they have these practice tests online. If you are wanting to become a U.S. citizen, you can take a practice test and, you know, see, you know, what your grade is, whether or not you're going to be able to pass. And I, last night I was just like, man, I've been a citizen for 28 years. I should be able to, like, ace this thing. And so um, I didn't do too horrible, but I, but I took it four times and I get, never got 100%. The first time I was like at 90%, the next time I was like at 85, the next time I was at 95, and then the next time I was at 90. So I was like, I guess that's a passing grade. Maybe I'd make it, but I'm not, not sure. I always get confused about the terms of senators and congressmen, but, but now I know. Now I know. And I think the first president of the United States was uh, Lincoln, right? 
Well, it's not because of our knowledge that God has chosen us. It's not because of our intellect. It's not because of our looks. It is simply a demonstration that because he is God, he has that prerogative, and it is a demonstration of his grace, which is really kind of encouraging because I think most of the time we don't feel good enough. We don't feel strong enough. We don't feel intelligent enough, and and the reality is probably that's true. And that is not what it's based on. The second thing that we see is that we are a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. Again, this language reminds us of the nation of Israel. Because there are 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. And one of those tribes was designated as a priesthood tribe. Anybody remember who that is? Oh, perfect. The Levites, right? So the Levites were designated as the tribe of priests. That means that they went and they served in the temple. But one of the things that's really interesting about that is that because they were designated as the priests to serve the rest of the nation, they didn't get a land inheritance when all of the land was divvied up, right? Because their inheritance was the Lord, we're told time and time again. Something else that's interesting about the priesthood, the the, the children of Israel, or specifically the tribe of, of Levi, is they had a unique calling to holiness, to be separate, to be other than, to not live the same way as all of the other tribes, that they were consecrated for a specific purpose. And so like the Levites, you and I have been brought into, because of the blood of Jesus, because he's brought us in to become citizens and thus priests, We shouldn't see any of this land on earth as our inheritance, but our inheritance is in heaven because our God is our inheritance. And like the Levites, you and I are consecrated, set apart, called with a very specific purpose to serve the church, to represent God to humanity and to, on behalf of humans, pray to God for them. And so we get to be priests. And by the way, if you are a believer, you are a priest. Doesn't mean we all have to walk around with all those awesome, like, Catholic little collars, the white collars, or Anglican, if you prefer that. Um, I wouldn't mind that. Maybe we should all start adopting those. But we are a royal priesthood. And you are a part of that priesthood. And what that means is that you belong in the church. Not just in the pews, but you belong serving in the church. God has given you a gift and there is a place for you to minister it here. Third thing that we see under this citizenship is that we are a holy nation. A holy nation. Everybody say the word hagios. Ooh, that was fun. Now I'm like really like hungry for some ice cream. Oh, that's Hagios. Hagios. Hagios is a term that, that appears in the Septuagint, which is just the Greek version of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It appears in the Septuagint 627 times. A variation of this word holy appears in the Bible. That kind of gives us maybe an understanding that this is an important term to God, that holiness is a big deal to God. And holiness, it speaks of of a sacredness, a a purity. It it speaks of a set-apartness, a differentness. When we say that God is holy, we say that, that there is no one like him. He is completely other than And God says of you and I that we are a holy nation. Now, again, you remember back to the the Old Testament. You remember back to the temple, to the tabernacle. There was this place called the Holy of Holies, right? And what happened in the Holy of Holies? There was the Ark of the Covenant. There was this mercy seat, the place where the sins of Israel were covered by the sprinkling of blood. And so this blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Once a year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, 
You guys are students of the Bible. You know this, that, that only one person one day a year could enter that holy of holies and sprinkle that blood so that the sins of Israel could be atoned for for one more year. That high priest would go in and he would make sure that he had done all of his ceremonial cleansing before he went in. He would make sure that he made himself holy before he brought that blood to make the nation of Israel holy. Now, honestly, would I hear Peter say that we are a holy nation, you and I? Because I know you. <laughs> and I know me. And I just kind of scratch my head at that and I say, oh, like, Peter must not know us. Peter must have maybe gotten this part wrong. Or maybe, maybe Peter is not just declaring this over us, but he's admonishing us to become holy. And honestly, that was kind of where my first inclination was to go is like, okay, he talks about us being a holy nation. Therefore, let's talk about like all the things that we can do to become a holy nation. But when Jesus, when God the Father looks at you and I, he doesn't see us with our sin all over our faces. He doesn't see us with our, 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 our impure motives or our gnarly thoughts. He sees us as the sinless, perfect children of God. And that's because we don't have a, a high priest that goes in every year. We have a final and a forever high priest who didn't just sprinkle some blood of an animal, but he poured out his own blood so that he is both high priest and sacrifice for us so that that atonement is once and for all you and I, pure, blameless, holy, and maybe that's what you need to hear tonight. Is that this isn't an admonition to become holy. But this is a declaration that if you are in Jesus, you are holy. Because we have a mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so our identity should inform our activity. Our identity as a holy nation should inform our activity as a holy people. So part of this is, yeah, it's, it's a declaration over us that we are holy, but let us strive to allow our lives to imitate the reality that is already in heaven. You know, you and I should stand out. I think there's this kind of tendency in the church, and there's this tendency even with, amongst us to sometimes try to look a little bit more like the world so that we can win the world to Christianity. I think there's this tendency to be maybe a little bit more uh, inclusive and, and blur lines that we maybe shouldn't be blurring so that we can win people that are on the other side of those lines. And, and I just want, kind of want to ask the question, I asked this question myself, is like, what's so attractive about a copycat? I remember back a, a few years, I had a friend who was trying to sell me on this Samsung device. He was trying to convert me from Apple to Samsung. May it never be so. Amen. But he kept telling me, he's like, oh, yeah, this Samsung phone, it's so cool. It does, it does what the iPhone does. And, and, and he was telling me, like, oh, yeah, this Samsung, yeah, the, the Samsung phone, it, do, it does that thing that the iPhone does too. And that new feature that the iPhone has, yeah, the Samsung just, just came out with that a few months later. And I was like, okay, if the Samsung is trying so much to be the iPhone, then shouldn't I just stick with the iPhone? Like, what are, you, what are you using? What's different? What are you trying to win me with? When we try to be just like the world but just add a little bit of Christianity on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, what in the world is going to be attracting your neighbors or your family members or your friends to be like you, to cross that line and say, I want to be a citizen of that kingdom when we're trying to mimic the kingdom that they are a part of. If we aim to be more like the world, we will never win the world. 
fourth characteristic or a little subcategory that we see dealing with the citizenship is that we are his own special people. My daughter is a year and a half, I think, ish. She is. She's over a year and a half, so that's a true statement. It's weird, like, before they're two years old, you always, like, count in the months, and then if you don't know the exact month, then you feel like a horrible father. But she's less than two and more than one. So <laughs> she's a year and a half, and she's super attached to this blankie. It's, uh, it's got, like, a little elephant head on it. Not a real elephant head. She wouldn't be able to keep that with her. Um, it's too big. They're heavy. Big ears. But it's like uh, maybe 12 inches by 12 inches and this little tiny little baby elephant head um, attached to her blankie. And it's her Ellie. And she takes that Ellie everywhere that she goes. And my son, he's um, a little over three, not yet four, somewhere in between. He was trying to get her Ellie from her just yesterday. He was chasing her all around and, and he was like trying to grab it from her and take it and... And that, that is her prized possession. That is something that she has a tight grip on. That is something that she takes with her to bed. It is something that she takes with her in the car, that she takes with her in the sandbox. We wash it, don't worry. But it is her prized possession. She's not going to let anyone snatch it out of her hands. You and I are his own special people. And he is not going to let anyone snatch you out of his hands. You know, 43 times in the Bible, we see this phrase repeated over and over again, that, that I will be your God and you will be my people. And I think that we need to, again, we see a phrase quote that many times. We need to open our eyes and see, okay, what is this that God is saying? That we are separated from the world, that we are separated to him, and we get to use, and our minds have just got to like pause for a moment and be blown away at the fact that God wants to use personal pronouns with you. Not with all of the world, Not just with everybody, but with each of us. That he is your God. That you are his daughter. That you are his son. Says that we were once not a people. We were were once non-citizens. We once had no homeland. Our parentage was missing, absent, gone. But we are now the people of God. We are his special possession. We had once not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He has made us who had no citizenship, citizens and representatives of the highest country or kingdom in the universe. You know, in the U.S., When you become a citizen, you have certain rights that you didn't have before, and you also have certain responsibilities that you didn't have before. Prior to becoming a citizen, you could not vote. Prior to becoming a citizen, uh, you did not have to serve or get to serve, I should say, on a jury. Anybody do jury duty? Like the week that I turned 18, they got me. I don't even know how that happened. It's random... I guess. I doubt it. Um, Luckily, I didn't get picked because I was 18 and none of the lawyers wanted me to be representing anything or having any thoughts of of my own uh, at all. There's all this idiot. Send him home. Make him pay for his parking tickets. Not tickets, just, you know, they didn't validate the tickets. I'm not bitter or anything. When we become citizens, we have certain responsibilities. One of those is, is the privilege, right, to serve on a jury. And, uh, and the, the reality is that when we become citizens of heaven, there are certain responsibilities and rights that come with that. But actually, before we turn there, before we look at those responsibilities and those rights as citizens of 
his kingdom. I just want to point out something that these four subcategories dealing with citizenship, that they're all in the plural. And I think that's worth just taking a, taking a second and noticing that it doesn't say, it doesn't say that you are a chosen individual. It doesn't say that you are a royal priest or that he's called you to be a holy man or a special person. Though maybe all of that is true, Peter says that we are a chosen generation that includes a whole group of us, that we are a royal priesthood, that we are a holy nation, that we are a special people. And I just want to point out that a lone wolf Christian is a contradiction, that God hasn't called us to follow him all by ourselves. He's not interested in private disciples. But we need to be banding together because we're better together and we're made to be together. We need to be collectively a part of a church and not just pursuing Jesus all by ourselves. We need to be doing that together. With all of the identity that we just looked at, our citizenship in heaven, with all of that identity in mind, Peter calls us to action because, again, our identity informs our activity. So what are the responsibilities of a citizen of heaven? He says in verse 9, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So what is our responsibility? Proclaiming the praises, declaring his greatness, the majesty, the wonder, the excellence of God. Literally to express how amazing he is, is our responsibility. We get to join with the heavens that declare his handiwork. We get to join with the firmament that shows his glory. And that's part of our responsibility is to be a praising people. And so you ask, well, what are we supposed to say? What, are we, what exactly are we supposed to declare? What exact, exactly are we supposed to praise him for? Exactly what the verse says, that he's drawn us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. The book of Colossians, Paul says in, in chapter 1, he says that God has transferred us. He says, actually, in verse 13, he says, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. So question, what's your story? Each of us has a story. What's your story of how God transferred you from the kingdom of darkness? And, and, and what's your story of how you've experienced his marvelous light? Sometimes I think that I, the longer that we follow Jesus, the longer that we're in the church, the longer that we've been here, sometimes we forget to remember where we've come. Sometimes we forget to remember the testimony or even to share the testimony that God's allowed us to have, that he's given each of us. And so I think maybe one challenge for us as citizens is to proclaim his praises by remembering where he's brought us from and what he's bringing us to, and to not only tell him about that, but to tell others, to share that with the outside world, to share that with the people outside of these four walls. So we've seen that we are citizens. You are a citizen. Second point is you are a stranger. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, you are a stranger. You're not supposed to talk to strangers. It's dangerous. Shouldn't have done that. Look at verse 11. It says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against your soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitations. I always like looking back at some of the uh, original languages of the text. So are you guys okay, like, greeking out over this with me? 
Ah, sorry, that was like one joke, geeking out, greeking out. These are the jokes, guys. These are the jokes. There's two words that Peter points out here. He says that you are sojourners and you are pilgrims. And the Greek words are perikos and parapidemos. And they both start with that same root, para, para. And those of you who are students of the Bible, you, you can immediately think of what para means because you've heard a lot of us talk and you've probably read yourself about uh, the three different relationships of the Holy Spirit to humans, right? There's para, there's en, and there's a p. You guys remember that? You guys are like, oh yeah, Nelson's talked about that a few times back, a few times before. So para literally means beside or alongside. And so this first word, sojourner, the literal translation is alongside the house. And then the word pilgrim speaks of somebody that's traveling through. It's somebody that is alongside a city or a land. And why that is so significant is that we aren't in the house. We aren't taking up residence in the house. We are called to be alongside the house because this place isn't our home. So both words talk about being by the world, but not of the world. There's a proximity that we have with this, this land that we're in, but there's not a possession that we have of this land. This land doesn't possess us. We are neighbors, but not natives. This world is not my home. Heaven is our home. Because we're citizens, that necessitates that we are also strangers, citizens of heaven and strangers in this world. When Alyssa and I first got married, we were living in this apartment uh, a, little, a little down the road, and uh, we never like put any nails in the walls. Because they were going to like charge us, you know, if you put nails in, in the walls and you create all these holes and there's all these different rules because it's not our permanent residence, right? And so we like get that little sticky tack and we put some tape on and we kind of decorated, but we didn't really settle in because we just knew that it was a temporary thing. Ironically, we did have a dartboard hanging up and I think we missed the dartboard about a hundred times. <laughs> so we still paid the fee anyways because there are a hundred holes all in one little area. But because we knew that this place is not our home, we're going to be out of here soon, this is just a temporary place, then we didn't settle in. We didn't dig down roots. And this place, this world, is a temporary living situation. Now, I'm not telling you don't buy furniture. It's good to have a place to sit. Uh, I'm not telling you don't have, you know, decorations in your house, but are we living in a way where all of our attention is on this temporary residence? Are we putting all of our attention and all of our interest and all of our finances and all of our time into creating this place, investing in this temporary apartment that we're living in? Or are we living with eyes towards eternity, investing in what matters most, putting our money towards things that's going to preach the gospel and bring people out of that darkness and into marvelous light like we've experienced? And so you are a citizen and you are a stranger. Now, we saw that certain responsibilities come with being a citizen. And that's also true that certain responsibilities come with being a stranger. Look at verse 11. Again, it says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners, as pilgrims, as people who are non-citizens here, as people who are just wandering through, passing through, that you abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Now, abstain is not really like a word that we use every day. Uh, somebody was asking me, like, hey, do you, do you want coffee? And it's like, mm, I'll abstain, brother. Just kidding, that's never happened. I've never passed on coffee ever. It's one of the prerequisites, I think, for being on staff here is that you drink coffee and you do not abstain. But the idea of abstain is to refuse or to withhold, to make sure that you do not engage in that. And so Peter warns us, he says, if you are strangers, you've got to abstain from the fleshly lusts. That war against our soul. 
And I think that we hear the word lusts and we hear flesh and we automatically think like of sexual lust. But the reality is it's not just dealing with that. The reality is it could be dealing with materialism, trying to acquire everything. It could even be dealing with pride. Could be dealing with positions, seeking after and living your life for a title, living your life for your bank account. Peter even says in 1 Peter, this same chapter, verse 1, he says, Lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking, these fleshly lusts, these desires. And the reality is, every one of us has fleshly desires. Every one of us in this room has desires that aren't of God. Desires to maybe dig down our roots a little too deep in this soil. Every one of us has those desires. But what Peter would point out is that those same desires, that they war against our soul. The word war there is pretty significant. It talks about an ongoing campaign, not just a battle. We're, living, we're talking about the, the time of the Romans, right? Roman Empire. What the Romans would do is they would go and they would circle a city and they would camp out and they would create like a city around the city, a camp, that city that they wanted to take over, that they wanted to destroy, and they would create a siege around it and they would stay there for weeks or months or years. And they were ongoing attacks to destroy the soul. And Peter would tell us that these desires that we have within ourselves, we have to abstain, we have to fight them off, we have to say no. We have to withhold ourselves because they are warring against our internal being, our souls. That's why we have to cut those off. You know, something that's really encouraging, though, through this and through reading this, is that this world's problems, because this is just a temporary place for us, this world's problems and its possessions don't have to. They don't have to win the battle against us. They don't have to consume us because this is only a temporary residence for us. And so as we're going through suffering, as the people here clearly were, maybe even greater than suffering that we've gone through, we're going through, they're encouraged to know this is temporary. It doesn't have to consume you. It doesn't have to be your master. It doesn't have to, you don't have to march to, to, the, to the beat of that drum. So the first thing that we see is that we should abstain or that we should resist those evil desires, those fleshly desires, but two, that we should engage and we should represent. Notice in verse 12, he's 12, he says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Did you guys know that the world is watching you? Peter says right here that they observe us. The world is watching us. But notice what it doesn't say. Peter doesn't say that they will glorify God because of our good words. It says that they will glorify God, those who call us evildoers, those who throw accusations against us, that they will glorify God because of our good works. Well, let me be clear. I mean, we talked about in verse 9, Peter has already told us that we need to declare with our mouths the excellencies of God. We need to proclaim and we need to declare, but, but we also need to be a people that demonstrates the love of God. We need to demonstrate the fact that he's called us out of the dark and into light. And the balanced and the biblical Christian does both. Both speaks the gospel, but also shows the gospel. Even when people are attacking us, we can show the gospel to them. Not just debate them, but display to them what the gospel looks like. So you and I are called to live lives where our message matches our lifestyle, where our walk matches our talk. I read this really crazy story. Um, you guys know what LifeLock is? It's a company that like secures all your personal information so that nobody can steal your identity and take out credit card loans or, or 
yeah, I guess other things that you do when you steal somebody's identity. Um, take out payments or pay for things, and then you end up in debt, right? That actually happened to my wife and I, first year of our marriage, that same apartment complex. Man, that was a bad apartment complex. Anyways, they got like her birth certificate and they got her social security and then they like started and then we were like thousands of dollars in debt, but don't worry, it all got taken care of and we didn't pay for it. Well, LifeLock is a company that, that helps secure your personal information so that the criminals can't use your information against you, right? Well, in 2007, the CEO of LifeLock, he thought of this really clever advertising campaign where he posted a picture of himself, he posted his name, and he posted his social security number in an advertisement. They rented out billboards all over the country. They rented out space on websites. They posted it on their website. And he says this. He says, I'm Todd Davis, CEO of LifeLock. Yes, that really is my social security number there. No, I'm not crazy. I'm just sure our system works. Just like we have with mine, LifeLock will make your personal information useless to a criminal. And it's guaranteed. Well, subsequently in the, in the following months, he had 13 um, acts of, uh, of, of identity theft. He was a victim of identity theft 13 times in the next few months. So the very thing that he was trying to promote was how secure his system was. So he had this message, he had this rhetoric, but there was a gap between his advertisement and the reality, the rhetoric and the reality. And so what happened is this very thing that he thought was going to propel the company and get so much positive attention ended up getting all this negative attention because it's like, well, I guess their system really doesn't work at all. And so the advertisement that they put out actually worked against them. And when we proclaim one thing with our mouths and live something entirely different, we discredit in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of our neighbors, our friends, our family members, our coworkers the very gospel that we're proclaiming. See, the inconsistency between our walk and our talk can discredit the gospel we believe in. And so is your life reinforcing the message of the gospel or is it discrediting it? And it doesn't mean that we're perfect because clearly not one of us in this room is perfect or will be perfect this side of heaven. But when we mess up, do we admit it? When we mess up in front of our coworkers, when we start screaming in front of them, when we lose it, do we come to them and ask for forgiveness and demonstrate even that gospel and the forgiveness that we experience from the cross to them? Or do we just try to like play it, play it off like, oh no, well, I was actually in the right anyways, and, and, and then we, we lose more credibility. You know, the world will speak evil of us. Peter says that here. He says that, that, that many people will call us evildoers and by our good works, they will glorify God. But the world will speak evil of us. Something that was happening here in their day is that Nero was blaming the Christians for the fires of Rome. Other things that were being said about Christians at the time is that we were cannibals because we practiced communion and there was all this miscommunication and they were, they were saying all of these evil things against us. And the world has a lot to say about Christians today too. We kind of have this reputation of being intolerant, hateful bigots. And so can we, by our good works, not debate them and tell them they're all wrong, actually, we're not hateful, but can we, by our good works, display love to defeat this idea of hate? Can we, by our good works, win over the world that speaks evil against us? Look at the, the second half of verse 12. It says, they may, by your good works, glorify God. You know, we're not saved by our good works. We all know that. But I had this kind of crazy realization last night is that we're not saved by our good works, but our good works could play a part in somebody else's salvation. Because when we as a church rise up and say, hey, there's a problem with childhood hunger in our nation, but guess what? We're going to do something about it. We're not going to complain that the government's not doing something. We are going to rise up. We're going to pay our money so that the hungry kids can eat a Thanksgiving meal. When we rise up and we accept refugees into our homes and when we go out and we visit the prisons, when you take a moment to share an encouraging word with your neighbor to take their trash out for them or you choose not to complain at work when everybody else is, 
you are removing the power of the world's accusations against us. By your good works, you are proving to them the gospel and the glory of God. My dad shared a story with me when I was young. I was probably eight years old, and he had told me that his boss had found out that he was a Christian. And so his boss made it her aim to make him upset and to make him lose his temper. And she did everything that she could to try to get him to lose his witness. And he didn't because he's like the best guy that I've ever met in my life. Uh, But by his good works, he demonstrated to her that he doesn't belong to the kingdom of darkness anymore, but that God has transferred him into the kingdom of light and has made him a holy people. Says that by our good works, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. So question, what in the world is the day of visitation? That is a term that's used a few times throughout the Bible. It's used once in Zechariah, actually speaking about God visiting Judah with punishment and with judgment. But then it's also used in the book of Ruth, speaking about God visiting the people who had been experiencing famine. He had visited them with blessing or with food. And so he visited them and then their crops came back. And so we have this term, the visitation of the Lord, visitation of God, the day of visitation, meaning two things. is both judgment or blessing punishment or salvation. And when Jesus comes back, and he will, for some, that is going to be a day of rejoicing. And for some, it's going to be a day of weeping. When Jesus returns, it's going to mean salvation for some, and it's going to mean judgment for others. But what's wild is the life that you and I are living today, in this day, affects how people are going to respond to that day of visitation. For the unbeliever, would our lives so demonstrate, so demonstrate the gospel that they are left without excuse? That they would look and they would see the Lord and they would say, you know what? My neighbor was loving me. My neighbor was demonstrating the gospel to me. My neighbor had been proclaiming and telling me about his story and how he had been changed by the gospel. And he was right. You know, I had this thought that God forbid that my life, that Matt Parolo's life would ever be somebody's excuse not to believe. God forbid that the way that I conduct my life would ever be somebody's reason to not trust in Jesus, that my life would be misaligned with the words that come out of my mouth. You know, Charles Spurgeon said this. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Would we live our lives in a way that we're not giving any occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme. For the eventual believer on that day of visitation, it's going to be a day of rejoicing for them because it's a day of salvation for them. And would they, when they see the Lord coming to bring them up to be in his kingdom forever, would they be able to remember the testimony of your life and your impact in their story, in their life? See, your good works, our good works, what we do as a church plays a part in others' salvation as they see the testimony that we're, we're living. I looked up some of the benefits of becoming a citizen. I told you this, that there are some rights, that there are some responsibilities, but I looked up some of the benefits, and this is really brilliant. I, I thought this was incredible. It just stood out to me. It said that, uh, that one of the benefits of becoming a U.S. citizen is this thing called the reunification of families. The reunification of families. 
And it says this, U.S. citizens can file immigration petitions with the government to reunite with family members. So for Mei Zhu, who left China and came to the U.S., became a citizen, she was able to write a petition so that her extended family members could then also become citizens of her new country. And isn't that the goal? That by our prayer, by our words, by our works, that we would be bringing foreigners into the family of God. That we would be petitioning. That's one of our privileges as citizens of the kingdom is that we get to bring more people in to become citizens. So our final thought, and we'll pray it out, is that like Meiju, she entered, we all entered life the airport of life, if you will, as aliens, as non-people, without a parentage. But like Meiju, we've become citizens and we have become ambassadors and representatives. Not because of our works, but only because of the cross, only because of his mercy. And so like Meiju, we are more than citizens. We are ambassadors, we are representatives. And so would you join me in taking up this challenge of loving the alien, of loving the outcast and the orphan. Because that's who we all were. Aliens, outcasts, orphans, the people that we think so little of maybe. You know, we come to Christ sometimes and we think, okay, well, I had my life, I was in the kingdom of darkness, but clearly God's done a work in me now. And we forget where we were. You know, the children of Israel were once foreigners in, a, in, a, in, a, in the land of Egypt. And God so often reminds them, you were once foreigners, and so you should love the foreigners in your land. And so I want you to think about, and I want you to pray about the people that in your life you look at and you think they're a foreigner. They're a non-citizen. They're a non-person. And how can you love them? And how can you proclaim with your mouth and display with your life that gospel and that love of God? Let's show them the path to citizenship, which is the cross of Christ. Jesus, we thank you so much that you have brought us out of the darkness, that you really have brought us into light. You've given us newness of light, life, that because of your gospel, we are born again into a new family and that we have a greater purpose than acquiring possessions. And in the midst of our pain, you promise us that we have an eternal home without pain. You promise us that this is temporary. You promise us that you are with us and that we are your special chosen people. So God, I ask that we would be about your business, that we would be a priesthood to our city and to our state, that we would represent you outside of these walls, that we would remember our stories of where we've come from and that we would celebrate it with others. God, we ask that you would stir something within us to be vocal and to be visual with our faith. We ask that you would do something great in this city this year. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For more resources, visit calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from the Bible from 30,000 feet.